0: Marriage on a Tightrope supports couples in strengthening their mixed-faith marriage.
1: Visit tightropemarriage.org to make a recurring donation and learn more about the mixed-faith community. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Alan.
0: I'm Katie, all the way on the other side of the room. (laughs) That's right. I miss you so much.
1: (laughs) And we are still married. In fact, in just a few months, it's going to be 19 years I have been warned many times that I have until December 18th of 2024 (laughs) to plan a really good 20th anniversary.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: Really good 20th anniversary. I mean, 20-year.
0: Come on, David, right?
2: I remember that. How many years ago? It was a long time ago. Back
1: in (laughs) 1990-something. I don't know.
2: I don't know. When was it? I'm 43 years in my marriage.
0: And did you plan your 20th wedding anniversary?
2: Uh, that was uh, the year 2000. I, I'm sure we did something, but, you know, when you get to 43, maybe you forget about <laughs> each individual one.
0: Yeah, probably. They just <laughs> meld together. Well, we don't get hardly any time together ever. So the the one time that we get to do something stands out.
1: Yeah, we're looking for, I think our 20th anniversary is going to be the next time we're alone. So we have a year and three months to get it done. That's right. Well, everybody, we're excited that you're here with us. Another episode of Marriage and Rope. and we're excited as you just saw we spoiled it before the momentous introduction that we are joined once again by the wonderful David Osler, um, author, uh, mud wrestling is that I think <laughs> author, uh, general great human being, uh, author of the book Bridges, ministering to those who question. Uh, just a phenomenal book. We've had him talk about that book a couple of times. We are going to talk a little bit about the impact of bridges on our lives and me and Katie's life and the lives of our listeners, uh, and also get to a new project, perhaps a little spoiler for, uh, foreshadowing we'll call it. That's a little more elusive and fun, uh, to talk about towards the end of the interview. But, uh, you thanks again for being here, David.
2: Happy to be here. And, um, I think Alan and I realized this is the first time we've actually met.
1: Yeah, we walk, you, I walked up today about 20 minutes ago, and, <laughs> and we looked at each other and went, wait a minute, this is the moment, this is the first time we've that's ever right. met.
2: I met Katie before because she came to a book event I did, but uh, it's good to meet you, Alan, in person, and you're just as handsome as I thought you'd be, <gasps> and a little taller. I'm blushing.
0: <laughs> well, David, you've got the beard going on since the last time we we saw you, the salt and pepper it's a good look
2: well i've tried it before but it was so mixed that i had to wait until it got as gray as it is now <laughs> before it could ever really look good uh
0: well uh i when alan grew out his beard i complained a whole lot about kissing that face and now it's not a big deal does your wife complain or is it not
2: a big deal no she she likes it she likes it kind of trimmed up like i got it now but um you know so early she says she doesn't mind it i'm not sure
0: well there you go Maybe you can talk on um, beard products after this, that's something right. to help it grow that's in right. a little thicker like Alan's.
1: Yeah. The uh, first thing on our agenda was beard hygiene. That's so right. The, <laughs> checks, check the check. box. That's Katie, right. what's what's number two? We're going we're gonna to uh, dig in here.
0: Yeah, we're going to dig in. So the last time that we interviewed you, it was May 20 of 20, 2022. So it's been about a, almost a year and a half since we've had you on. And uh, you added a second edition to Bridges, which is why you came on. And you added a few chapters in there about mixed-faith marriage. And what else did you add in there?
2: So not only mixed-faith marriages, but also dealing with kind of mixed-faith families in general, Mm -hmm. particularly where parents are um, wondering how to... Um, deal with both their emotions and their relationships with their adult children, some of which have departed from the church.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, so timely because so many of us are in that position or have given the book to somebody that we love <laughs> and with the hopes that they would read it. And, it's, it's
1: interesting. And am sorry, Katie, to cut you off. Yeah, We'll get here to, the, to another question, but you know, Katie and I, I think we've talked last time too, We've given to the book to multiple people on both sides of our family, and some have read it, some haven't. Hey, I'll be honest. I don't hold anything against those that haven't. I've been given books by Katie that I haven't read. <laughs> so, <clears throat> sorry, maybe that's my anniversary gift to you, is, is reading a book you, you gave me. Once I think she time.
2: maybe wants something a little bit more than that. Yeah? <laughs> you think? <laughs> I right, think? I'll take maybe. it from you. You're the
1: expert. You're the it <laughs> well it's, it David. Well, it honestly has made a big difference for those that have, have read it. Um, it's been a really good, just baseline groundwork and kind of opened up everyone's perspective of, okay, maybe I have some own, my own personal work to do, uh, and some understanding to, to try to get to. So once again, we'll say this every time we ever talk or awkwardly hug before an interview, thank you for your efforts with Bridges and in this general community.
2: Well, thanks Alan. You're kind. Well,
0: I want to ask, you know, your your first book came out in 2019 and then you had the second editions and that came out in 2022. And I'm, I'm wondering what, like, how do you quantify the impact that the book has had both f- 2019 and 2022?
2: Um, you know, it's hard. You can measure it in terms of how many books you've sold and stuff like that. Sure. I, the thing that um matters to me more than any of that is the the emails or the messages i get from people mm. um letting me know that um if there's someone who's departed the faith that they felt like i was able to articulate some of the experiences that had led them out and some of the pain and the challenges that they had felt uh leaving mm. um Uh, that perhaps I was able to tell their story in a way that was um, uh, had integrity to the way they felt about it. Everyone's story is a little different, but maybe there was enough common elements there that they felt like um, they were heard, and that they were heard by people who were in the church, uh, people who were believers, uh, people who, um, uh, you know, still find meaning and joy and happiness in in participation of the church. So that's kind of one group that, um, as I read those stories, people share kind of their experience, I, I feel kind of uh, grateful that um, I was able to give them voice, because mm-hmm. many of these people find it difficult to be able to express uh, kind of their faith journey. And then there's other groups that um, kind of reach out, sometimes leaders. Uh, I had a missionary senior missionary working in a a YSA stake that reached out to me, I think about a month ago, and wanted to talk with me about what could we do different, and how could he make it more comfortable for people to stay, or how could they communicate to people who left? And I know those aren't quite the right words. but um, uh, So those are meaningful conversations when you know that four years after the book, people are still Um, suffering from the disconnection that they feel when they leave the church and that they want to be understood. And for people uh, who genuinely want to understand why people step away and how does that impact uh, their relationships or what they can do as church members or even church leaders to be able to um, uh, extend grace or healing or connection or belonging whatever might be a course for them.
0: Okay, I want to go to the leadership part of it, because I think that all of us for sure want our families to read it, for sure want understanding and love. But I think ultimately also there is this underlying um, need for acceptance, a need for maybe um, some compassion coming from leaders uh, to those in the congregation, so tell me how have you seen this work like positively in you know for for people who are part of these congregations where leaders are looking at this and wanting to either extend fellowship or or compassion or or make a change
2: so I think the first thing a leader really needs to do here is they need to um, They may disagree with someone, but they need to extend. I'm going to use a word maybe a couple times tonight. uh, Dignity to the person that that person has worth, that they have uh, an ability to choose for themselves, that they have kind of a unique way of seeing the world that is completely rational and valid to them. And that if they choose a different path, that doesn't mean that we don't honor that path. And the way we honor that is we extend to them dignity, that they are a person on the same standing as ourselves, that they have um, the the right and the responsibility and even the, the obligation to make choices for themselves. And when a leader approaches it that way, that's very different than when a leader approaches that person who Is has departed or is wondering whether to depart in any sort of diminished way Mm -hmm. when they think of them as fallen or they use words in their their mind that kind of other them um, and and maybe sometimes even extend feelings of contempt towards them so i think dignity is a really important issue for a leader to feel that you know they're still a, a person they're still uh, an eternal soul they're they're still um uh you know a valid person and i think when we feel that way then our actions are motivated more by love and more by acceptance than than they are um, perhaps with some of the negative ways that leaders can treat them
0: yeah i oh i so appreciate that point of view and i can't help but think that the it goes both ways. What would you say to the one that's transitioned out, or maybe someone that's in my space where my husband's out and and I'm wanting, I'm feeling that dignity, what is the best way to respond to a leader that is giving that to you?
2: Well, I mean, I think I think for people who depart the church, it's sometimes tricky. You know, there's intense feelings that come from a faith deconstruction and you know, or a faith crisis, or whatever term someone wants to use to to describe that, and and sometimes those feelings are really painful, and sometimes there might even be trauma associated with what triggered, you know, their their deconstruction. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, we have to be healed from that, and it may take time, but I think we also have to reciprocate that the people who stay, the leader who, with good intentions, is maybe not skilled at reaching out, but has good intentions, we need to offer them that same dignity. Mm. And sometimes it's hard for people who, um, you know, leave the church, and you know, I think, I don't like that term, but it's, it's simple. They know what it's like to be in the church, and so they've made a choice to go out um, and sometimes it's hard for them to, because they've made that overt choice to leave, knowing what they used to know, it's hard sometimes for them to extend that same dignity to people who stay in the church and to kind of honor that that's their path, just like they want to be honored that this is their path.
0: Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that so much because you know we, we've seen the black and white thinking in the church and we want to get to a, a space where we can hold space for for you know faith along the spectrum and also though those ty- the, there are some that leave the faith and kind of stick with that black and white thinking and so for leaders i can see that it's it can be a very difficult position because uh you know, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, and uh, darned really, if you do, darned if you okay, don't. darned, darned heck, <laughs> darned heck. Oh gosh! And I'm not even the one that's out, and I'm <laughs> saying the swear word. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, but it it can be a no-win situation <clears throat> for a leader who is is trying to extend <clears throat> dignity and trying to um, lend compassion to those in the congregation or you know their neighbor or whatever it might be um i have a question yeah
1: Uh, while we're on the topic of leaders um what has your personal experience been in response and and answer this however you need to or are comfortable with but what has your personal experience been like being the author of this book with maybe not even your personal leaders totally understood we don't talk about our leaders on our podcast but as you've been kind of going around talking about this with multiple leaders in multiple different geographic areas, how has the response been? Is it is it frustrating when it's not what you would hope it would be? And I don't know, just talk about that a little bit if you could.
2: Yeah, so um, let me, I, I haven't really kind of talked about the personal journey. I don't think on your show mm. about the personal journey that I went through writing the book. Um, so... Um, You know, I've just been reflective. Ten years ago, I was a mission president in Africa. And then um, five years later, I start writing this book about why people leave. And um, uh, I realized that as I was writing the book, I had a lot of the same um, thoughts and beliefs about why people leave, about how best to reach them, about how to... Um, you know, um, I I certainly thought that it was my responsibility to correct them and try and pull them back in. And as I wrote the book and did the research for it, I kind of came to a journey myself Mm. that um, got me to a point where I'm trying to describe what a leader could or ought to do, which is extend dignity and grace to people who feel they can't or don't want to stay as an active member of the Church. And so that was a journey for me. Um, I realized that every leader—every one of us, not just leader—we have to go on a journey on this. So when I've been approached by leaders, and uh, and they've approached me, state presidents or bishops, they say, come to my ward, speak about this. And I say, I can't. I don't want to do that. I want you as a leader to go on your own journey on this Mm. and understand what you need to understand so that in your calling as a bishop or a stake president you in fact can lead your stake or your ward Um, i've gone into ward councils with bishops i'll talk to their leadership team i've gone to state council meetings with you know the stake leadership and talked about this but it's all been To help them with their own journey, if you will, because every one of us has starting points on this. And every one of us, the only way we're going to understand this issue is if we do the work ourselves uh, to understand the issue. And I can't change that for someone. I can just help them along that path. So I've chosen to be in a much more coaching way Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to replace them and tell their wards or their stakes how to think about this issue. So that's been my approach. And there's been some leaders that have responded really well to that. They've used um, things they've learned along the journey in their, uh, you know, their ward conferences. I know a stake in Oregon that did that. And for a year, this was a theme in their stake Talked about belonging. They talked about building trust. They talked about, um, you know, loving and not judging. Um, and so some of those wards and stakes have been able to do that. Some have had done it and have told me later what they've done. And some I've been involved in, kind of helping them in their own work to do this. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm curious that the information so you when did you initially gather the information from the YSA group like what year was that
2: That would have been in early 2018.
0: Okay, early 2018. And I'm thinking now to the pandemic, right, 2020, mm-hmm. so much changed. Uh, across the board, attendance in churches are down, not just our church and in lots of other churches. Um, A lot of people, a lot of congregations getting smaller. And in some cases, you know, they're moving boundary lines and they're combining stakes. And um, I'm wondering, do you think that the pandemic had Additional factors to it, why people decided to step away, or do you feel like it was similar to your research? Some of that was just the same; it just was in a larger amount.
2: I I don't know if the data is out yet to kind of quantify that. Mm-hmm. My own instincts are that yes, um, you know, there has been greater trend towards disaffiliation. I think there's been also other. Um, Issues that are kind of new in terms of um, uh, the trigger, if that's the right word, that would cause someone to say, do I want to still participate? Uh, I think some would be um, kind of the hyperpolarization that we had around COVID. I've I've talked to um, people for another project, and maybe we'll talk about that later who um, really felt challenged to be able to remain in the church, given um, local congregations' approaches to COVID. Some required masks. Some uh, uh, um, mentioned repeatedly President Nelson's counsel to be vaccinated. And that was—regardless um, that. Regardless of how the ward handled it, there was alienation that would have been there. People had very strong feelings about that, and that came— into our congregations, and there was a sorting. I think there's also political polarization that inherently um, enters our congregations, and I think that's been—the data shows pretty clearly that that is greater than it used to be. And so some of the turmoil over the last decade, maybe longer, around uh, politics creates alienation, and and that has accelerated, Mm. uh, and its effects probably are also felt in an increased way within the Church. So I think we're dealing with not just religious difference, but differences with regards to public health, differences with regards to how we approach our elections and the key social issues that are important to us. And I think that creates, again, conflicts between uh, people that have different beliefs. And since maybe it's hard for us to be able to deal with that. It does kind of have people say I can't participate anymore.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so well said. Did you have a, a response? Well, yeah.
1: So Bridges was released in what year again? Ninety-nine or two thousand right? Yeah, two
2: thousand nineteen. I got my twentieth wedding anniversary. <laughs> <years>. <laughs> so you're thinking about it.
1: You're thinking about it. So I mean, you just think I'm mean, exactly what you just said. That's where my brain goes. Of just within a year, obviously, there's been political divide before 2019 but COVID really accelerated that and the church Katie you talk about a no-win situation um yeah where leaders are darned if you do and darned if you don't it's the same situation with with how COVID was handled like you explained so since just since Bridges has come out if you wrote that book again today it probably would look a little different which maybe is why we're sitting here today because it's kind of led to a few other thoughts that are gonna to lead to another book. Are we allowed to talk about it? Are we allowed to say yeah, it that? Yeah, this way? is
0: a good segue because you're talking about the difficult conversations and polarization on both sides that people are having. So tell us what inspired you to write another book.
2: So kind of where I came out on bridges is that we it's really hard for us to live in difference. It's hard for parents when a child says, I no longer believe, and I want to live a life that's very different than what the parents want for them. It might be around religion. Maybe they became a vegan, and, you know, (laughs) Thanksgiving dinner is difficult now, or maybe it is politics or career choice. It's hard for us to to deal in difference. Um, And um, we have many forces in the United States in particular. It's less so in other countries. But um, whether it's religion or politics or other life choices, um, we struggle with how to deal with people who go a different direction. And that's what Bridges was all about, is being able to provide an authentic voice for people who leave the church and to understand them better and to uh, put together a possible set of skills so that we can, in fact, remain Connected, whether it's in a family or a marriage, an award, you know, wherever it is, also in a community or in a nation, even though you believe this, I believe this, and you believe a third thing, and we're pretty strongly um, certain about what it is we believe, and so when that happens, what do we do, and how do we think about that, and um we sometimes don't have the skills within the church or within our marriages or with, with our children to be able to do that. And I think we all probably know we don't really have those skills in our country mm-hmm. to be able to do that. You know, we're pretty angry people right now in our country. And it's pretty hard for us to deal with the difference. So for the last two years, I've been exploring why. And some of this is personal discovery of why am I that way? And then, you know, what does—what what should I do, and how can we do better in that area? Because if we don't, you know, our our families fracture, or our community fractures, or our nation fractures, or our church fractures. And, you know, I, I think those are really dangerous and bad things.
0: Gosh, I feel like it's um, pretty incredible that you would be so— Uh, introspective about the subject. Where, where does it start? Well, it starts with me and how do I respond to these things and why do I react the way that I react? That's, that's a really hard thing to do. We can all day point fingers at other people, but when we point the finger at ourselves and to try to figure out what, what's going on here, I can't help but think that that is probably the best trajectory for long-term change, right?
2: I, I don't know how to change other people. I really only can change myself. Yeah. Um, Maybe I can write a book and maybe that helps people on their own journey towards change. But, you know, the only one I can really do is change myself. And maybe you haven't been angry about what's been going on in the world. I, at times, have been. And yeah. sometimes I don't behave well. And, you know, I shout into the ether on social media. <laughs> And, you know, I've had circumstances where I've alienated people and I've fractured a relationship. You know, someone once told me, you know, don't contact me again. I don't want to hear from you again. And, and you know, that stayed in my mind. And, you know, that person has dignity. I actually respect them, um, even without that kind of a negative exchange. And, um, you know, what about me, you know, did that? Maybe mm-hmm. he has a problem too, but there was a problem with me also.
0: What kind of research goes into, well, looking at yourself first of all, but then trying to observe what other people are doing and maybe how they can change it. How do you do that?
2: Well, you know, my career—I had an odd career. I I did, worked in a in businesses that analyzed the effectiveness of healthcare. So the first thing we'd always say is, what does the data show? What does, you know, people who research this, what do they, um, what have they studied? What have they learned? And let me tell you something that's really interesting. You you have to get into your mind and you have to understand how the mind works. And our minds are amazing, but they have limitations. So if I held up a picture of someone and asked you to say how attractive they are, you'd say an answer. And then if I, um, told you the political party that that person was a member of, and if it was opposite of what you thought, you would rate them less attractive. These are studies that have been done in psychology. So basically, people who are not like us in terms of their beliefs, we think are uglier. And people who are like us in our beliefs, we think are prettier, more handsome. And so there's something psychological in our minds that make us think more charitably to people who think like us, and more skeptically and negatively of uh, people who don't think like us. Whether it's religion, or whether it's politics, or whether it's you know the football team you're rooting for, you know on on Saturday, and so we we just tend to do that, and that's natural. It's built into our brains. It's not that I'm a bad person because I have that. But once I understand that that's the way my brain functions, I'm not a slave to it anymore. And I can say, well, you know, just because that person thinks that way, does that mean they're my enemy? And I can work mental gymnastics to kind of pull them into my group, even though there's one thing about them that is different. Maybe there's two things. Maybe there's a hundred things, but I still can find verbiage and an emotional connection to that person to pull them into my group. Group, and then I see them more favorably, and I extend to them more dignity and more charity.
0: Okay, so does that just come with like practice? Yeah. Do you literally have to practice finding the common denominator with between you and the other person?
2: Yeah, you do, and um, you know we're all going to make mistakes. Even if we practice this for you know twenty years or forty years, we're we're all going to be. Um, You know, our our brains are still wired that way. So, you know, in times of stress or anxiety or just casualness, we're going to make those mistakes. I think for um, Latter-day Saints, it should be easier. Maybe it's harder in some ways, but we talk about how we are all children of heavenly parents. So that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? We are taught to love our neighbors as ourselves. Neighbors is inclusive. And who's my neighbor? It's even, you know— the Samaritan, I guess, the Samaritan showed that he was the neighbor. So, all are alike unto God. We have all this verbiage in the church that should unite us. We, when we're baptized, we even make promises to to care for each other. And it's not a limitation of who's baptized. It's to care for each other, meaning everyone. And we mourn with them, and we comfort them, and we try and create. Um, Um, you know, a better world for them. So, but we have to think this because there's many things in our life that don't reinforce that Mm. and create others. And, you know, politics is one of those where you're, seems like many people think they have to be on one team or another.
0: Right. Alan always jokes that because he so often puts himself in other people's shoes, he can't hate the Giants anymore because he used to hate the Giants.
1: I'll tell you, I'm not a,
2: <laughs> football or baseball? baseball? Baseball. Okay.
1: I'm not I'm not a Zen perfect person, but like sports rivalries just don't mean as much anymore because it's it's so much easier to understand. Well, okay, you grew up in the Bay Area. Of course you're a Giants fan. <laughs> I grew up in Los Angeles area. Of course I'm a Dodgers fan. That sucks. Can't can't we just can can we like we can have a little bit of hate, right? Like a little bit of
0: how about a little bit of pride?
1: We got a, a little bit little pride. more pride
0: in our, in not, not to sure. say that our team is, is better than someone else, but we can have a little I, more pride. I will and say, a little as far hate.
1: as political stance goes, I try to judge everyone equally on their physical appearance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 oh boy. That's a whole can of worms. We're not going to, we're not going to open tonight.
1: No, we're not. So one thing I'm thinking about, David, when, when you talk about this, this new book, I think of Jonathan Haidt's book, and I think that's how you pronounce his last name. The book of a righteous uh, mind, a righteous, Righteous the righteous mind. Why good people are divided by religion and politics, politics Politics and Mm -hmm. religion. I think it's the other Mm -hmm. way around. So, is 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 what you're writing similar to that? Is does his does his kind of go into the psychology of the why, and yours is trying to explain the tools that we can use to overcome that.
2: Yeah, so I think we have to understand the psychology, and Height's book's a good one. And it was one of the first ones I read on this. And, um, you know, I, I, I recommend it. It's in my resource guide in, the, in, in my book. Um, there's others that I also include. The way I research is I pick up a book, and after I read it, I go to the footnotes and find the other opinion leaders associated with that. And then I go to those books and kind of work my way out, if you will. And that's one of the first ones that I read. Um, And it talks about how we're all born different, and we see the world in different values, he calls them. And some of those are because we're innately different, because of our genetics. And Latter-day Saints would also believe we have an eternal spirit. And But we also have different life experiences. And my life experience is completely different than either of yours. You know, I formed my worldview during Vietnam and Watergate. Mm. That informs me. Some of my children's worldviews were formed during um, the mortgage banking crisis or Mm 9-11 and the war on terrorism. And so they see the world differently. And, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake and my children grew up in New England. And so they've had different cultural experiences. So we're all different. And that worldview that we have is persistent. It's the way we say what I want for myself, what I want for the world. And it includes religious beliefs. It includes political beliefs. And they're, you know, valid, and they, they come from that place. Um, there's other books that kind of talk about the tools of dealing with difference and what can we do when, in a marriage or a family or in a congregation or in a community, we interact with people who have very different and very tightly held beliefs, very important beliefs to them. Um, we go. The book goes through the psychology about the different ways in which our brain kind of fails us, like the picture, you know, once I know that it's uh, this party, right? There, I see them differently. There's other biases that we have, mm-hmm. not just kind of an in-group, out-group bias that that represents, but my favorite one is the competency bias. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, mm-hmm. and um, everyone thinks they're smarter than they really are. And every, you know, if you survey software developers, I think this is probably about it, 40% of software developers think they're in the top 5% of all software developers. You know, and we always... <laughs> does that hope...
0: change from men to women, too?
2: I'm sure it does. <laughs> There's there something no called mansplaining here that, uh, that that enters this, right? Right. Sure. And so for someone like myself, you know, I've had a good career. I've been a leader of organizations, both in the church and outside. I have a tendency to think I know more than I do. And and there are skills that we can develop that counteract that. And we can pause and say, why do I think I know that? You know, what about my background makes me think that I know what you're thinking and that your view is wrong? You know, just because I might have some opinions about it doesn't mean that I'm an expert on that. Some things I am an expert on, but most things I'm not. So um, we go through the psychology, talk about the bias, talk about the skills we can develop. There's some practices that we can go through with ourselves and with others. And then I, I phrase it in an LDS concept, context. There's actually some pretty powerful teachings that the Church has about how to deal with difference. We don't hear those all the time. You know, We talk about other things often dignity, for example, and honoring difference and wanting to be peacemakers and avoiding contention, but not necessarily avoiding positive conflict. Because there's a difference between contention and having difference and working in that difference in positive ways. Mm -hmm. So, so
1: Before you move on, can you dig into ways you feel like the Church does that well? the conflict or avoid confrontation versus that's different than positive conflict. So, everything that you just listed, that's the one that stood out to me and, I, and I'm sitting here thinking, do, do they do that well? Or in what ways do they do that well?
2: Yeah. So, um, the, the best example of the church doing it formally, and I am not an expert on it, I'm not an insider sure. on it, is where the church... Ah uh, worked with LGBTQ activists in two thousand fourteen and fifteen, and I know the work went back maybe even ten years before that, where Utah passed a law that protected against housing and employment discrimination for based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, when the church did that, they um, published out of the the newsroom, their public relations group statements that talked about, how um, LGBTQ people had been oppressed historically and how we need to rec- recognize their equal rights in the community. Now, all, they were also concerned about making sure that religious freedoms were protected from the, for the church. But they met in a middle place where they were able to create um, an elevated social environment for people who could have and previously were um, marginalized by public law um, in the state of Utah. They call that the Utah Compromise. um, And I think that's the best example of that. Um, President Oakes talks about this. uh, He did a talk in November of 2022, I think, at the University of Virginia. And he talked about how we don't always get what we want. We have to compromise, not all laws that are passed, laws that we would support. but we because we're a pluralistic society, we have to accept that um, we are going to have some of those circumstances that w- that we support, although collectively we support, although individually we may not. So I think the church talks about this periodically. Um, I think that President Nelson's talk in April General Conference this yeah. past one, is probably the best and most current, and the one that is most widely available to church members. Some of this other stuff most church members don't know about. But, you know, he talked very um, powerfully, I think, about peacemakers. He talked about how in his council meetings there's different views expressed, and because they have different views, they have better answers. And so he talked about dealing with difference. Now I realize that's in a church council and you know that may not play itself out the same way in public all the time. But I I think the church recognizes the danger that we face today from this polarization and you know incivility in public life.
1: I don't know how my response is going to play out.
0: Well, hold on. Go Can ahead. I I'll I'll say Like, I do agree that President Nelson's talk was really good. I thought that that was like a really good model, you know, things that we could, you know, all use to be more civil, be more compassionate towards towards everyone around us. I will say, coming from the believer, I still feel like we all have a long way to go. The church has a long way to go as far as having more difficult conversations, meeting Meeting marginalized groups in the middle. Um, is this what you were going to say? Is this long lines? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to, yes. I mm-hmm. wanted
1: to explain what's going on inside of me as a representation of the individual that has left. Because that's half our audience, right? Um, where you asked, I asked this question and the response I absolutely, again, this is why I prefaced my response with like, I don't know how this is going to even come out of my own mouth, but. And I'm probably going to agree with you, but I want to hear what comes out of your mouth. (laughs) Sure, thank you. (laughs) See, you're already, you're doing it. You're living it. (laughs) So, you know, when, when you explain, and and this is, this is a rare example on Marriage in a Tightrope, where we're going to get into a specific example where we usually kind of stay away from specific examples just because. Of the polarization on many of these topics right so in your response you talk about the church's public work in the in lgbtq rights and i don't think that that's really debatable like it's it's on it's in public record and the timing of which uh, this is where like my anxiety starts to go on the fritz because i've seen i've seen ways in which the church has enacted their own policies privately, that aren't in the direction of helping that community feel safe within the church. So it's, I don't think that those two things, as I'm just kind of processing and talking through it myself, are mutually exclusive, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not what you're saying, but in many ways, the church can can do good for a group or individuals that are members of that group, publicly and advocate for them publicly. While at the same time, I'll go like half a step further than what you said, Katie, more than they could do more, like they should do better for that group in their own communities, even if they are lending their influential voice in the state of Utah, especially to uh, advocate for those groups publicly. Did that make any sense?
2: It did make sense to me. And I, I, um. I don't mean to say that the church is perfect on, on either dealing either, with yeah. LGBTQ individuals, or dealing with issues of public accommodation, and dealing with um, individuals' differences and accommodating them in thought or society. I I think that um, if I look back on the my own work that I feel I have had to do on this issue. Um, I see that um, whether it was taught to me or I simply absorbed it as a part of my culture, I've had to um, pause whenever I have so much certainty about what is right and true. Um, And when a church talks about kind of exclusive truth, that. For me, I absorbed that and came to um, a polarized worldview. Mm. And I don't know whether the church wanted me to do that, or it just subconsciously reinforced that as it tried to teach me um, to accept truth claims, teach me as a missionary to go out and proclaim the truth. Um, I like... um, what I learned on my last mission, which is to invite people to um, hear things that may be useful to them. And I like that better than trying to change people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I, I am, I, we're, we're trying to dance around this issue. All institutions in the world unintentionally create polarization. All institutions in the world sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously marginalize people. It's just the way it is mm-hmm. because our brains work that way. We tend to dismiss people because we tend to devalue their belief or where they come from or their status in society or whatever. you know that's just the way our minds work. It's part of this outgrouping thing. And so, Unexamined, that happens in the church regularly, sometimes, you know, by um, people who speak authoritatively for the church and often just in the culture we find in our wards and our pews. So, for me, I've had to step back and say, I have to look at when that happens and the effects that it has on me and find ways and skills to be able to make sure that that doesn't affect my relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did we dance around it? Did we? are dancing. I'm, I'm no, fine. We're good. going like, deeper in this. Uh, no,
1: truly, uh, my my, res- my response back to you is not a challenge to to. Uh, I think the original question, just so everyone is on the same track, the original question was: In what ways does the church encourage positive, positive? Sorry, positive conflict. What did you say? Positive.
2: <laughs> Well, I call it positive conflict.
1: Yes. Okay. I Uh just wanted to use the same terminology you did. So just, uh, it, it was not, I think your, your example is completely valid. I just thought it was important for the viewer, the listener to hear my own, my own internal process when my own worldview is challenged. And, and I don't even think you were trying to I don't even think you were challenging my worldview, but what I mean is, you bring up LGBTQ and the church, and my mind immediately goes, Whoop, and my yeah, emotions yeah. go mm-hmm. like that, yeah, and I'm yeah. on high alert. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that's kind of a good example. I'm, I'm actually not, like in the in the game of wanting to be okay with how the church uh, treats the LGBTQ community, but I want to recognize when someone that I deeply respect brings up uh, any topic and especially one that is pretty charged and polarizing that i can recognize what happens when my emo- what my emotions do and so thanks for talking through it Like i don't think we need to go any deeper on that topic mm-hmm. it's just helpful at least personally if everyone else is confused at what the h is going on right now it's fine but for me it's helpful to hear you say what you said and kind of try to talk through what my own internal reaction
2: was well let's just process it a little bit more, not so much on LGBTQ issues, but all of us are gonna have, uh, I'm not sure the right word is trigger, but all of us are gonna have issues that we feel very, very strongly about. Mm -hmm. And when we are in a situation where there might be challenge about that issue, we're gonna react exactly like you reacted. Alan, there's gonna be a physical effect on us, you know, my guess is that your blood pressure went up and your heart rate went up. I'll check
1: my watch and
2: see what, what it says happened. <laughs> you know, but but there is a real effect that happens on it. And um, it's often in the emotional centers of our brain where we feel something. And might be passion, it might be anger, it might be fear. You know, I'm not sure exactly. It'll be different for all of us based on the issue and, and how we feel about it. And... Um, being able to recognize that you articulated it well. Um, and we were able to, you know, you were able to kind of process that. And, you know, it helps that we're on camera. Sure. If we weren't on camera, you might have processed <laughs> just, a little differently, <laughs> you know, and you knew I wasn't, um, you know, kind of the of church's course. spokesman on this, this issue. But um, that's what happens to us in this. And that's what happens probably when a wife says you know dear i i don't think i believe anymore or you know a kid comes to dad and says you know i'm i'm leaving the church um you know those same emotions you know are going to be triggers kind of in those discussions and in those settings and how do we process that how do we step back how do we set and emotions are useful. I'm not saying set the emotions aside. They're, sure. they're very positive elements about how we deal with things, but use them in the right way so that we can obtain what we want, which in this case is, you know, a good, peaceful conversation where we all feel understood. It could be wanting a closer connection. It may be wanting to, to understand or be understood. And so, you know, there are skills we need to develop to be able to do that.
0: Let me ask you this, because I think that it would be easy for us to work on ourselves. I mean, right? Like you can change things within yourselves, but I'm thinking specifically of family members, where the emotional intimacy or the level of emotional maturity may not be a part of the makeup of the other person, and and so you know, we have a family member that for a lot of years, in order to um, keep the relationship, we just avoid conflict completely. And that does lessen the amount of um, the emotional intimacy between us and that person. This person's going to be in our life always. Um, And also though, I feel like we've done ourselves a disservice by not trying to like dig in a little bit more because now we've gone years and it's been years apart without having those conversations. And when we could have spent, a, you know, a number of years sort of like chipping away at it, you know, now we're five years down the road and we are at square one.
2: It's kind of frozen. It is. Yeah.
0: How do you get to a place where you can,
2: do that so um here's here's a tool one thing um when we deal with people in difference um, we can ask ourselves what do we want to accomplish in that difference so um when i was a church leader and someone came to me and said you know bishop i don't believe i thought my purpose was to fix them And so I kind of approach that conversation of what should I say to them? What should I have them do that will restore their faith? That's a goal. It usually doesn't work out. It almost never works out when we try and tell someone what to believe. Um, One of the goals that we can have is to just have a, you know, build a relationship. And that may be that we set aside issues where we either don't have the skill or, The willingness of both parties to kind of explore. And so we find other common ground to build a relationship. And that can be a goal. Another goal can be to understand the other person, to be able to say, I I don't know what you're saying. Help me understand. Mm. Let me ask some questions and have them, you know, explain what they believe, how they got there, um, you know, what about their worldview and their experience kind of led them there and to kind of explore the dimensions of that difference of belief. Hmm. Um, Another goal can be to try and change someone. Um, And, you know, I'm a parent. You know, I spent many years trying to teach my children. That's trying to change them, right? And so, but how we approach that um, and how we do that Can either be effective or ineffective. Mm. And so, um, it takes two to tango. We're never going to have complete agreement with everyone, and we may have mixed goals, which means that we're not going to be able to achieve something more. I think we always can find a way to build a closer relationship, maybe not the relationship that we want, but that's that's a device we can just set back and say okay this is a setting where we have differences what do i think is a good goal and an achievable goal in that situation
0: yeah that's that gives me a lot to think about and you're right um i <laughs> i think like i have these lofty goals as to what what should happen and and i also and i don't know how many people do this but like i do a lot of like pre-judging so i'm judging how i perceive they'll judge me which is completely unfair it's it's it causes nothing but hurt usually and uh anyway something that i really need to work on tell us uh with the book what were your main goals? Like, what did you really want the book to accomplish? And do you feel like you accomplished it?
2: Well, since it's not been published and I haven't had people <laughs> tell notes, me about hard to notes, it. Know yes. so far. <laughs> but, but I will tell you one thing I did with the book. Yeah. Um, I finished the first manuscript in January. And um, I'm a guy. I'm 65. I'm 66 now. I was 65 then. I have a particular political philosophy, you know, et cetera. I sent it out to 30 beta readers. And um, some were people I knew. Some were strangers. And I paid them some money to read it and give me feedback. Because I have blind spots. And I wanted my book to be useful. And I wanted it to um, um, be acceptable for them to read. Um, You know, did it? Did I reveal too much about my worldview that would cause them to say, you're ugly? You know, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make sure that the examples I used were neutral, that they could be heard, that um, that people could um, uh, consider the ideas behind it so that it could have the widest audience. And I got great feedback, and it took me about two more months before I felt like I had then a revised uh, version of that, and then I've mm. been in kind of the publication process since late, um, since mid April. Mm. Um, so um, I've I've wanted it not to be me. I, it's, you know, there's stories about me and how I've dealt with issues, but I've wanted it to be something that could connect with many people. Um, I ask questions throughout the book. Um, you know, I'll just stop after I've written a paragraph and say, you know, imagine this, or what about you did this resonate with? Or how did your worldview form? What are the most important events that you think shaped you? Um, So I ask those questions. What I'm really trying to do with the book is to help people on their own journey Um, and to take you know, some thoughts about psychology and the gospel and um, kind of personal aspirations, I hope, and have them say, yeah, I can do something here. I want to do something here. I feel motivated uh, to, to find ways to connect more with people, to um, have positive conversations even when we have differences, to find a way to make a better world. Um, so well, you know the proof in the pudding will be whether I changed fifty people or five or five hundred um, or I guess I didn't change them whether this was helpful in their desire to to change. maybe I ignited the desire, but you know their work's gonna have to be their work,
0: and so um consistent between the first and the second goals, i because we just talked about bridges. And one of the um, things that you said is that you wanted leaders to take this into their own hands, to have their own experience with it, and then to be able to change. And very true to form, here comes the second book, and you're challenging the reader to look at themselves, maybe look at their own paradigm, their own privilege, and then to offer them a way, tools, and a way to um, speak with others that are not on the same playing field as them.
2: Yeah. I, I hope it can do that. Uh, the You know, the one thing—I I, kind of keep going back to this—the one thing that it has done for me, um, and I'm not perfect on this, I could probably name 30 people that, for me, I haven't yet gotten there— um, I want to be able to dignify everyone. I want to reflect that where they are, what they believe, the way they see the world is legitimate in their their own eyes. That they have something to offer me, even though I might disagree with the most important values that I hold true. Um, But um, I can still find a way to um, learn from them, honor them in some ways. Now, the 30 people, you know, I think there are bad actors. I think there's people that are malicious and evil. And um, I have a hard time, you know, maybe I can't judge who they are all the time. But um, with the exception of those, I think most of us are in this other camp that are, you know, legitimate journeyers, you know, trying to make a good life for ourselves and for the people around us. Oh, my gosh.
0: I just had the Oprah moment where I I, I heard what you said, and I thought, the people around me have something to offer me. And how differently would we treat every person around us if we knew that they had something that they could offer, wisdom, whatever it might be, to offer me for, for me to learn from? I think that our approach would be different in the way we spoke, uh, and in the way we interacted with them.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think there has to be a caution here, and um, you know, it's a caution that I think is an important one, and that are that is that there are some issues that I'm, I'm not suggesting we be polite in the face of um, really crucial issues. Sure. And they might be different for each of us, but. But, um, you know, I, I'm really glad that there were people, you know, 160 years ago that said, we're not going to do slavery anymore. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it could have, okay. we could have just been polite and maybe we were polite for Try longer long. than we should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think there's some issues that I don't think they trigger us to violence, but I think they trigger us to, um, our best ability to be able to create positive conflict, to be able to create change. Mm. And, you know, so I, I I don't think this means that we're wishy-washy and have no values. I think we have values. I think they're very important to us. I advocate for values. They should define society and who we are. But we have to find positive ways in which to have engagement around those issues mm. where people Hold things differently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Have we
1: said the name of the book?
0: We. Uh, that was my next question. Is can you tell us the name of the book and when can we look for it?
2: It's called "A Better Way: uh, Overcoming Contention, Healing Our Divides." Uh, I chose "A Better Way." This comes from a Mormon scripture, Ether twelve three maybe. Wow, in, don't look at me. Uh, yeah, Alan, Lee, <laughs> the scriptorian. <laughs> Um, But this is um, Ether, the prophet who's just watched the annihilation of his people. And it's written by Moroni, who's just watched the annihilation of his people. That's kind of contention at its worst, right? Genocide is kind of right up there on the contention scale. But they expressed hope in a better world. So we're not there on the political divide side. But they hoped for a better world, and I hope for a better world. So, um, that's the name of the book, A Better World, Overcoming Contention, Healing Our Divides. And publication date is tentatively set for the first week of December. Things right. could change on that, but that's what we're working towards.
0: All the Christmas gifts, just in time. Just in time. Will you have a book signing in Utah? I mean, what, what what's, yeah, th- that's the plan.
2: Yeah, I, I live in Virginia in the winter, but um, I live in Utah in the summer. So uh, I'll probably come out for about a month in the winter Great. and, uh, you know, be involved with some book uh, activities for that.
0: Great. Well, this will be absolutely on our list. Uh, maybe we can do like a little preview party with some of our Marriage on a Tightrope, uh, yeah, our, our whole community. I have always said this, that in our own little community— there are so many couples working through really difficult situations, really difficult conversations, right? Topics that were, that never existed. Now they have to face and discuss. And I do feel like um, it's made for a much better place where people are holding space for each other. And that's one thing I, I feel like um, this community has really worked out worked on and we just we just had a retreat this weekend where we had um women come from all backgrounds from never being mormon to post mormon to very nuanced to active and we held a women's retreat and you think well how do you find spirituality in that and yet we were able to do so because the people that came and the people that were there Um, recognized that everyone had value and everyone had their own paradigm, where they came from, why they believed the way they did. And um, my very believing sister, who is the Relief Society president, attended and felt safe enough to share her story with a very post-Mormon friend of mine who never wants anything to do with the church again. And I kind of feel like there is so much magic in that when we can provide those safe places to talk about this and develop those skills and so this goes right along with really uh a mission that me and alan feel so strongly about thank you for being here thanks
1: for
2: sharing
0: yeah
1: we're excited can't wait for number four <laughs> whatever the next book Giants versus Dodgers <laughs> I don't know what that is making well, sense. is I'm a Dodgers fan eh? okay
0: well yes I knew there was
1: something good when about Vin sh- Scully died man my oh, heart broke oh I have cried very few times I probably cried quicker when Vin Scully died than my own father
0: oh geez <laughs> was that dark? that's dark and that not mind. true will...
1: yeah that's probably not true that's probably not true <laughs> no I'm with you on that I'm with you on that David thank you so much for for yep. being here on Marriage and a Tightrope uh listeners and viewers thank you for for being here as well uh you can david in fact before i give our outro how can people follow you whether it's mm-hmm. on social media where you're active or do you have a website they should go to just to make sure that they they don't miss the release of the book, et cetera?
2: We don't have the website built yet, so no I'm embarrassed, but um, I do have an email address that I'm putting in the book that people can contact me on, so I'll put it on, right here. It's called Divides at gmail.com.
1: Perfect. All right, Divides at gmail.com for David, uh, tyrope at gmail.com for Alan and Katie. <laughs> we hope everybody has a wonderful time until our next episode if you'd like to support the mixed faith marriage community marriage and a tightrope you can go to tightropemarriage.com or tightropemarriage.org. they both go to the same place to make a donation today and become a recurring uh, donation uh, donor for marriage and a tightrope we hope to see everybody at a men's retreat that was a little bit of a teaser that might be premature but we're starting to plan a men's retreat similar to the one that katie just talked about
0: alan i have a question for david mm. Ooh. Is Alan going to read your book in audio form? Huh.
2: Well, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the people wanted. I just. We
2: we shouldn't put Alan on the spot
1: here, but well, uh, I think we're putting <laughs> David on the spot. I, <laughs> I think we're. I don't know if David I think on the Both on the spot. That's, That's right. right. For those that don't know, I did the audio book for Bridges, and I thought it was great. It was. It was great talk about triggers that was hard for my mom to listen to i wasn't really <laughs> yeah well because some of the things because
0: it was his voice
1: some of the things that you yeah. wrote that yeah. i said yeah was were difficult for her yeah and i can see that. i have a few audio clips of outtakes of me like reading a few of the, the parts from the book and then going, oh, God, that was a tough one to read. And, and then, it was and it's actually and,
0: just a bunch of swearing. So you probably
1: don't want to listen to mostly, it anyway. It's mostly myself, like tripping up. Tripping my, up, my, yes. my, my, But oh, we, we really tongue-tied. should
2: get an outtakes version up, you know, on the audio book. And... <laughs> OK,
1: if we do hear, I, I will 100% if it, I don't even know if it's being offered, but if it is offered, I would be happy to do the audio book. Oh, well, thank for this, you, Alan, for this I
2: appreciate episode. that offer. Of course.
1: It's an important. We want, I mean, to, he
0: might want a woman's voice. So,
1: Katie just volunteered. I just volunteered you to be a woman's it voice. It's live. That's right. <laughs> no wow. pressure. He's right. amazing. <laughs> That's it, you, have, you have two hosts just clamoring over helping you with whatever you need. Yes. <laughs> thanks, everybody. And thanks so much again. We'll see you next time.
2: Thanks.